Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Stock Talk. This is a little podcast, and usually I do a video, but this week I'm not doing a video. Um, this is a little podcast that I like to put together where I like to talk about all things investing, talk about what's going on in the markets, and share with you some of my observations about what's going on in the stock market. Uh, share with you some other perspectives from other people and organizations, what they think about what's going on in the stock market, and also share with you how some of my own personal investment decisions, how I go about making those investment decisions. Really, the whole purpose of it is just to kind of give you some nuggets of insight and perspective and ideas that hopefully you can take away and apply to your own personal uh, investing circumstance. My name is Amon Reina, and I'm an investment coach and founder of Sage Investors. And as an investment coach, what I do is I try to, I ultimately want to try to help people um, become more financially independent. The problem is when people want to start getting into investing, most often people tend to feel really confused, frustrated, uh, intimidated by the whole investing process. They either don't know where to start when it comes to investing or they've been investing for a long time and just aren't seeing their portfolios uh, evolve in the way that they thought they it should be. So what I do ultimately as, a, as an investment coach is I, is I teach people. Uh, I engage with them on how to make more educated and ultimately more successful investment decisions so that they can achieve a certain level of financial freedom in their lives and achieve it with confidence. So this is episode 102 and it's a little bit of, it's a it's a bit of continuation from my previous episode where I started to talk share with you um, some of my investment decisions that I've I've made recently and in the last episode I I, I went through um, some of my investment decisions that I that involved me adding um, buying more stock or shares in ETFs or, or selling um, my positions and so today I'm going to talk a little bit more about um, the decisions that I made involved buying new stocks um, in my portfolio and in the past month. Um, I made the decision to buy two more, two new stocks, add two new stocks to my portfolio. And uh, so I'm just going to walk you through kind of the thought process that I went through to ultimately get to these decisions. Now, just to also let you know that I've actually posted a blog on these. Uh, there's a bunch of like three blog posts that I posted on my website, sageinvestors.ca, where I pretty much walk through the same what I'm going to share with you right now uh, on there. So you can go on there and if you're looking for a reference point, um, you can jump on to my uh, website, sageinvestors.ca. So if you've listened to, if you're new to this, uh, new to new to my podcast, um, what you'll what I like to do every periodically is I like to kind of jump on here and share with you um, my own personal investment decisions and more specifically how I've gone about making those investment decisions, the thought process, the rationale that has led me to those processes. Because I really feel strongly as an investment coach, um, as someone who teaches people how to invest and works with people on making investment decisions, it's one thing for me to teach this stuff and the mechanics and the behavioral aspects of investing. It's another thing to actually walk the talk. It's another thing to actually practice what what I teach. And so these episodes to me are really important in that it just gives me an opportunity to, 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 to demonstrate to you, to show you how having a bit of an idea, a bit of a thought process, uh, a framework that you can incorporate um, into making investment decisions can really go a long way to really improving your probabilities and your chances of making successful investment decisions. And so um, what I do is every time I, I look at a stock and I'm thinking about it, uh, 
evaluating a stock, I, I, I've kind of trained myself to ask myself some questions. And to me, these are, I've kind of come down to, it comes down to almost asking these eight questions. I call them the eight questions. And these are the these questions, I teach people how to, how to go about answering these questions in my everyday investing course, which you can um, register for online, or you can actually, we can do it actually, I teach it in person too. And so essentially what I'm gonna do here is for these stocks that I'm, these new stocks that I've added, I'm gonna just, I essentially walk through my framework. I basically ask these questions and hopefully, by the time I finish answering these questions, I should have a pretty good idea whether I want to buy the stock or I just don't want to buy the stock. Uh, and also some cases if I want to sell the stock. And so what I'm going to do is for these two stocks that I bought, I'm just going to walk through answering these questions um, accordingly. So the first stock that I looked at, the first investment decision that I made was to um, buy some shares or add shares, um, create a new position really of stock in Winpack. Winpack is a Canadian packaging company. And for those of you who have taken my everyday investing course, Winpack is a very, should be very familiar to you because in that course, um, in the courses, I used Winpack as sort of that um, exercise um, in going through all the different elements of investing in terms of analyzing the company, analyzing the ratio, measuring the financial performance of the company, um, determining the risk um, component profile of the business, and ultimately trying to value the company's stock. And so Winpack was the company I used um, throughout, the throughout the courses, throughout the modules. And the reason why I liked using it was because um, it's just a really straightforward, kind of easy company to understand. And as I, as you'll see as I walk through my analysis here, um, actually in the course, I actually do this in the course. So this was when I sh created the course, I went through this exact same process. So what I'm sharing with you is really an updated version of, of, uh, of that module. I believe it's module seven. So let's take a look at Winpack from the perspective of these eight questions that I that I ask myself, that I always ask when I'm evaluating a stock. So the first question I usually ask myself is, uh, when I'm looking at a stock, is what do they do? What do they sell? What is their value proposition? What makes this company, what makes Winpack a very unique company and a company really worth considering? So when you look at what Winpack does, what do they sell? They sell essentially packaging. Um, they are a manufacturer of packaging products um, for a variety of industries, the perishable, um, for perishable goods, healthcare, beverage, you name it. Basically, they, they package it. They can create and develop um, products um, for companies who have goods that they want to transport, goods that they want to display. Um, they are kind of one of those go-to companies. They're one of the bit, uh, more known companies out there. And so if I were to really give you a way to describe Winpack. I don't know if any, you know, if anybody remember watching The Simpsons, um, one of the episodes out there was uh, the one where Bart and his class, they took a field trip to a box factory. And as you know, going to a box factory doesn't sound like a real blast. It was kind of boring. And I really remember this episode really vividly because it's just the person, the manager of the box factory was, was really, you know, really run down, boring kind of old guy and just watching they were just watching boxes being created and, and watching movies and documentaries about boxes and to me winpack is kind of that company that bart simpson went to on a field trip and that's to say you know not very sexy it's not snapchat it's not facebook it's not all these twitter kind of companies it's a very 
mundane, bold, in a way boring, unsexy company. But they sell a product, they sell products that people need. And that feeds into some of the questions I'm going to get into. So question two that I would ask is who do they compete with? Who are their main competitors? And so um, for Winpack, their major competitors would be companies like Intertape Polymer, Cascades, um, basically packaging, other packaging kind of material companies. Um, those would be kind of their main competitors uh, out there. Um, so there's a fair level of competition. It's not like Winpack is the only company on the planet um, making packaging goods. Um, question three uh, that I would ask is who buys their product? Who would go and want to buy something from Winpack? Um, basically, when you think about it, they're selling packaging goods. So anybody or any company, business out there or organization that is producing goods for consumer, for industri industrial purposes, um, they're going to need something to package it up. They're not just going to make something and just throw it in a truck and hope it's going to stay intact by the time it gets to wherever it needs to go to. They are going to need some kind of packaging goods, packaging product to help them ship their goods to places and ship them safely. So, so chances are it's a lot of times, it's a lot of times companies that are in the pack in, you know, with products that have products, physical products and, um, that need to transport them. They are gonna be their customers. And that feeds into question four. Um, will these customers, are these customers just gonna show up to Winpack once and buy their product and never be heard from again? Or are they gonna consistently come back to a company like Winpack and buy their packaging goods, uh, materials over and over again? Well, <laughs> easy answer is yeah. If you're in the goods producing industry business, and you want to stay in business, you better be selling a lot of goods. And chances are, if you are going to be selling a lot of goods, you're going to need packaging. And so um, Winpack's customers are the type of customers that will come back over and over again and buy their products. So that's good um, from a long-term durability of the business um, to have customers that are going to be coming repeatedly back and back and forth, back and forth again. So now we get to question five. Now we get to the numbers. So the you know, it seems like, a, so far it seems like an interesting little company, not, exact, not exactly exciting, but it seems like a really viable, um, in-demand kind of value proposition that they're offering. So ultimately it comes down to, for investors, is do they make money? And when I try to answer this question, I look at it from a perspective of looking at um, the company's return on invested capital and compare it to the company's cost of capital. And usually if a company has a higher return on invested capital compared to its cost of capital, it's creating tangible wealth. It's creating economic profit. And from my experience, companies that create positive economic profit and create it consistently are creating tangible wealth. And ultimately, um, from an investment perspective, from a stock market perspective, um, investors will put premiums, um, will bid up those stocks that can demonstrate that they're creating um, solid, tangible wealth. And so when we look at Winpack, um, Winpack, and I just looked at the most recent year, I didn't get a chance to do a comparable, but as I said, I've looked at this company a lot over the years. And uh, in terms of the return on invested capital, last year, their the return on capital came in at around 18%. And their cost of capital came in around 8%. So it's creating, um, definitely creating positive economic profit, which is great. Um, I took a look at the revenue growth. And their revenue growth is 
nothing really to be, it's not a crazy hyper growth company. Their revenue growth is consistently, it's always been, as long as I've been looking at this company, their revenue growth has always been in the single digits. Very slow, very modest growth, but they are very profitable. Um, they, their margins are really, really good. So this is a slow growth, slow growth kind of business, but it creates a lot of um, tangible wealth. And that's, as investors, ultimately that's what we're looking for. Those are the type of companies we're looking for. Um, question six, this is where I take a look. I basically ask, what does the company owe, or what does the company own, and who do they owe money to? And this is really about looking at the company's financial position, the financial strength. And the best way as investors we can evaluate this financial strength of a company is to look at the company's balance sheet. And so there's a few data points that we can access, uh, try to calculate, that'll give us a pretty good snapshot of how financially strong the business is. And for the first thing I look at is the liquidity. Does the company um, have enough um, cash or short-term assets to cover off any of their uh, short-term liabilities? Um, is the company demonstrate a, a strong liquid has does the company have a, a good liquidity base um, and so when you look at the company's wind packs current assets to current liabilities the current ratio it comes in the company has about five times as much current assets as they do current liabilities so this is a very 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 strong has a very good high liquidity um, component to it which means from an operational perspective this company is not going to just all of a sudden go out of business tomorrow this is a very company that has a really good chance of being a long-term, durable, um, lasting organization. And ultimately, as investors, we want to invest in businesses that are going to be around for a long time. Um, I looked at the balance sheet and they have right now about $200 million in cash and they have zero debt. So this is, a, when I look at the company's balance sheet, it's a pretty rock solid balance sheet that, uh, that they have. So this is, you know, a company that's creating tangible wealth, strong economic profit, high returns on invested capital, has strong liquidity, a lot of cash in the bank, and no debt. So these are all great features um, so far that I'm looking at with Winpack. So, so far everything looks really, really good. Question seven, the question uh, I usually ask is, what are the risks? What could take Winpack down? What are the threats out there that could threaten Winpack's business? And really the nature of the business that they're in is packaging and it's really driven. When you look at, when I look at it on the surface, I think this company, the risks that are associated with Winpack are really, it's very economic sensitive. So the economy is going really well and companies are selling lots of goods and products out there, then there's going to be a greater demand for packaging. And if the economy is slow and a recession and there's less demand for, for goods, then a company like Winpack would probably see its profits go down a little bit. Now, what's interesting about Winpack is when I looked at this company over, you know, I've looked at this company for like almost 15, 20 years. Like I've had this company kind of in my radar. It's always been a company I've always had my eye on. And uh, it's amazing how consistent this company has shown, despite the various economic cycles that have been out there, how it's been able to generate very consistent uh, margins and very consistent profits. It's always generated positive economic profit. So it's a very healthy business, and it's shown that it's been quite resistant to a lot of the economic uh, roller coasters that we've that we've gone through. So that's a good thing, and that really is, speaks to, I guess, management's um, ability and competency in managing the scarce capital uh, in, in the business. So that's a really good sign too. 
Um, not to say that it can't be susceptible to economic shocks, it probably will be, um, but it seems like there's a pedigree, there's a DNA, there's a culture in that organization that is able to manage through it. Um, so everything looks great so far with the company, So, but ultimately as investors, you know, we're trying to fake, make a buy or sell decision or a buy decision on it. And so the last question I always ask is, okay, is the stock cheap? So when you look at it from a relative perspective, the stock is trading right now at 22 times on a PE ratio, price to earnings ratio. It's trading at, its PE ratio is 22, 22 times earnings, which is pretty expensive when you compare it to other similar businesses like uh, Intertape Polymer um, at the time is trading about 14 times and Tembak, which is sort of a lumber paper producing company, they're trading at 11 times earnings. So Winpacks are at 22. From that perspective, it looks kind of pricey. Um, so what really got me interested, Winpack is a company I've always had on my radar screen, but I've never really been able to buy it because I just found it to be really pricey. And uh, so what happened about a month ago, so the stock just tanked, it just went down like 10%. And I was like, holy crap, what happened? Something bad happened with the company. And I looked at the company, what they were doing, what they said they were doing, looked at their earnings. and. There was really nothing bad that happened with the business. They basically what they reported was their margins were they were forecasting their margins to go down in upcoming quarters because um, there was a hurt you know the hurricanes that were in the U.S. Uh, damaged some of the materials factories uh, plants that they kind of tap into to, to create a lot of their products. And so I guess the market kind of freaked out saying, you know what, they may not have the materials to create the packaging, which could ultimately impact profits. The stock went down 10%. And to me, I thought it was a really violent move and probably an unnecessary move because it was really a short-term issue. And so given the fact that I really like this company is a really strong wealth creating company. It's in a very durable, long lasting business. I thought, hey, this is really a good opportunity for me to pick up this company at a 10% discount. And there's definitely, I think, at least on a valuation perspective, at least 20 to 30% upside on it. So I thought, hey, this is, this is, I thought this was a great opportunity and it's a really safe, quote unquote, safe opportunity. So, uh, I pulled the trigger and I bought some stock. I opened a position, I bought a small position, and you know, if the stock keeps going down, then I'll be more than happy to buy more stock on it. Um, so that was my decision. So that's that's just to give you a flavor. I'm gonna do another one now with uh, Nordstrom here, but um, I just wanted to give you that sense of how I came about to get to that decision. It's really answering these simple, basic, fundamental questions. Um, that will, that led me to this conclusion that hey, I think I want to buy these buy the stock. Um, when I look at Winpack, and I, I'm really I don't know maybe it's I'm a little bit too attached or maybe I'm emotionally attached to it, which is not good. Um, if you were to ask me like what would be kind of that perfect stock to buy, I think Winpack would be kind of up there as that kind of really ideal perfect stock for me because. It's, it checks off a lot of things in terms of it sells a product that's constantly in demand. They've demonstrated, management has demonstrated an ability and a competency to, con to create consistent profits, create consistent wealth. Um, it's got a rock solid financial, uh, financial position in that it's got, it's flush with cash, l practically no debt, um, and practically very little in the way of intangible assets. It sells a product that's very boring, very mundane, very unsexy, but year after year, it just kind of, while everybody's looking at Facebook and Apple and all the, this company just goes about its business, just cranking out products, selling products, high quality products, 
bringing in the cash. It's just that solid long-term kind of investment that you just kind of buy it and you kind of put it away. And when I put all these factors together, it was 10% cheaper just recently. I thought, hey, this to me is a great opportunity to buy that kind of perfect stock for my portfolio. And by the way, I bought it for my kid's portfolio. I put it, put it in my kid's uh, RESP account. Um, again, because this is a type of company that I think I feel pretty comfortable just buying it and just sort of forgetting about it for four or five years. And I think it'll be a kind of a good, happy ending story. So when I look at Windpack, Windpack to me is one of those consummate, it's a company I've always had on my buy list, but I've just never been able to buy it because I just always thought it was really too expensive. And right now, you know, it is still expensive in a sense from a multiple perspective, but I, uh, I thought, you know what, it's 10%. The fact that it just kind of took a violent hit for no reason, I thought this was a really good, really entry opportunity. And that kind of led me to buy um, some shares of Windpack. So that's one decision that I made in the previous month. And the second decision that I made um, was I decided to buy some shares in Nordstrom. Um, and again, same rationale, same thought process I'm gonna share with you that I did with Windpack. It's about answering some basic fundamental questions and trying to figure out whether I want to buy or buy the stock or not. So let's do the same. Let's apply the same those same questions to Nordstrom. So and before I get into it, just to give you a little bit of a theme, one of my kind of investing themes that I, I've been kind of wanting to have exposure to in my portfolio has been around luxury retail, because to me, we're living in a world now where we're seeing a lot more inequality in the world. We're seeing a lot more high net worth people emerging in the world. We're seeing other countries uh, like China, Asia, you know, having a greater proportion of wealth being created in those countries, in those regions. And ultimately people want to buy nice things. And to me, the luxury retail area is one of those kind of um, long-term durable stories in the sense that they sell goods that are high margin, they sell them consistently. There's stable demand and growing demand now for it. Um, and they sell a value proposition that's very, very enticing to a lot of people. The aspirational aspect of living or demonstrating um, you're living kind of a high life and holding nice things. And so I kind of wanted to make sure when there's opportunities to add some kind of luxury retail component, be it a department store or actual luxury brands that I, I take, I, I kind of open my eyes and, and try to do a deep dive. So the one that kind of popped up on my radar screen was Nordstrom. So what is Nordstrom? Nordstrom is essentially a luxury retail. It's a department store. They sell all kinds of premium, um, exclusive brands. Um, that's the original Nordstrom. They've also branched out into selling sort of discounted brand name goods through their Nordstrom rack um, subsidiary or division. So their pro, you know, the value proposition is essentially, you know, premium goods and exceptional service. Provide sort of that upper level, go beyond the Call of Duty type of service. That's what separated kind of Nordstroms from other traditional kind of retailers. Um, question two: Who do they compete with? So North, the luxury retail space, because as I said, because of the growing numbers of people that are more high in net worth and have more wealth. Um, people are getting pulled out of lower class into middle to middle upper class. There's a lot of players in this space now. There's a lot of competitors now. You have companies like, you know, department stores like Saks, Saks Fifth Avenue. 
um, Barney's, uh, Neiman Marcus. Um, here in Canada, we got Harry Rosen, Holt Renfrew. Um, there's a lot of players now in the whole luxury retail space. And some people say it's, you know, when we get down to risks, um, saturation in, in the space is, is definitely one of them. Um, so there's a competition level. So there's a lot of competition, very competitive sector. Who buys stuff? Who goes shops at Nordstrom? Well, as I said, high net worth, upper, upper middle class, at people who are aspiring to a look more a luxury, glamorous kind of lifestyle. Uh, and it's also a much more global reach because of the distribution of wealth now, not just strictly a Western thing, but a more global thing. Um, which is interesting with Nordstrom because they really are more exclusively, all their stores are in North America. They don't have a presence pretty much anywhere in the world. Um, so that's kind of who their customers now. Now question four, will they, will they buy? Do they just go to Nordstrom's once and never be seen again? Um, the thing about Nordstrom is that, and because their emphasis on high customer service, they've really developed quite a bit of brand loyalty. There's a lot of loyalty um, with people that shop at Nordstrom's, and a lot of it has to do with uh, the exceptional customer service uh, that they offer. They rated very high in terms of customer service. Question five, again, it's the money question. So it's all nice and good. They seem to be a really great company and everything, offer a really interesting value proposition. Do they actually make money? And so when I took a look at Nordstrom's uh, returns, the returns on invested capital over the last three years have ranged between 17 and 25%, which is really, really good. Their cost of capital comes in around 9%. So this is a company that's generating high returns on invested capital that are greater than their cost of capital. They're creating positive economic profit. They're creating tangible wealth. And that's ultimately what I want to see. Um, revenue growth, it's a pretty, because of the competitive nature of retail, it's a single digit growth company, but the fact that they're generating strong returns on invested capital, that's a really appealing thing for me as an investor. Um, question six, now we take a look at their financial strength, financial position, let's look at their balance sheet. Their current assets, their current ratio, they have more than enough current assets to cover off their current liabilities. The thing that's a little bit concerning with Nordstrom is they have a really high debt level. They got a lot of debt, and which is actually kind of normal for the retail sector is they tend to carry higher levels of debt. Not a lot of intangible assets, which is good to see. The interesting thing about Nordstrom also is, even though it's a publicly traded company, um, it's a family-owned business. The, the Nordstrom family continues to have a significant majority ownership of the company. Now, what's interesting about Nordstrom right now also is the family has, at one point this year, were looking to sell. They were looking to either sell or take the company private. Um, and that got people really excited because the stock kind of popped. And this is kind of where I got interested is... It turned out that they tried to raise the financing to kind of take the company private and it didn't work out well because a lot of the financing companies were really asking for a high rate of return um, to finance the deal and like up to 13% and which was for the family, they thought it was too much and so they backed off of the, the attempt to take the company private. And so the stock kind of tanked after they announced that they weren't, they were going to back off the whole going private concept. Um, what are the risks? What could take down Nordstrom? What are the risks that Nordstrom is facing? Well, competitive nature, as I talked about earlier, the competitive nature, the fact there's so many different other um, uh, department stores, chains, that offer a similar type of value proposition. Um, 
that can kind of impact the company's earnings, could impact the company's earnings going forward. The other thing is Amazon. Like <coughs> retail stocks have just been taking taking it in the pants, really because of Amazon, and uh, which is interesting again because Amazon really is not doesn't have really much of a presence in the retail area. They've been quite dominant in the retail side, but not in luxury retail. Um, and a lot of it is they don't sell any really luxury brand goods on it because a lot of the luxury brands like Louis Vuitton or, or uh, you know, I can't think of any of that, Tiffany or place companies like that, brands like that don't want to advertise on Amazon because they perceive it's going to dilute their brand, dilute their exclusivity if they go more downstream or more mainstream. And so they've been very resistant um, in hooking up with Amazon and selling their goods on Amazon. And... It's, a lot of people criticize the company because they don't have that presence, but earlier in the year when Amazon ended up buying up Whole Foods, there was a great deal of debate because they thought that that move might have signaled Amazon's willingness now to kind of enter into that luxury space because um, Value Whole Foods sells, you know, a higher premium level, uh, premium level product category. They thought that was probably Amazon's first foray and that they're gonna go hardcore into the luxury space. And and it's taken a lot of the retail, other luxury retailers like Tiffany, uh, Tiffany and not Tiffany, uh, other department store chains like Saks, Hudson Bay, and uh, Nordstrom. Now, that was the perception out there, but I think what we've seen from Amazon is that they seem to be more interested in the distribution side and kind of being the players in the distribution side because a lot of the stuff that they've done with Whole Foods since they've you know they bought it have been more about distribution and really not about positioning um, Whole Foods as you know offering that luxury luxury um, value proposition and so just by seeing how they've kind of approached the Whole Foods thing I'm kind of skeptical in the sense that they're going to kind of go after the luxury space and be that luxury retail space. Now there has been actually some talk and some chatter out there that that Amazon maybe should go out and buy a company like Nordstrom or buy a department store like Nordstrom and get access, immediate access to that whole luxury distribution network and that whole segment of customers that are in the luxury space. And so there's a lot of people who have kind of put themselves out there um, have said, you know what, if Nordstrom's serious about getting into luxury retail, they shouldn't just build it. They should just go buy, just like they did with Whole Foods, but actually buy that side of the retail section to complement their whole business. And then they would be the sort of the end-to-end -end retail, you know, monolith that everybody thinks they would be. So Amazon is kind of out there in terms of a risk, but I don't see it to be that kind of crazy risk. The other risk that I see with the business is their emphasis on their rack stores, which are selling basically off-season um, brand-name goods at a discounted price. So, so when I think of that, and when I think of this, I think of what um, Coach went through when they started opening up all these factory outlet stores all over North America. What happened was Coach was a very exclusive brand, and and people you know, really love Coach products, but then they started opening up these factory outlets and it was insane because people lined up like from one end to the other um, buying Coach products at a discount. But what happened is over time, they kind of diluted their brand and the Coach 
you know, cachet of owning a coach purse was disappearing and it impacted the business really, really bad. And so the rule of thumb is, especially with luxury retailers, is when they, as soon as they try to start going down market, it's really, really hard to keep that exclusivity, that truly, you know, ecosystem of, of being that kind of, or that aura of being a really luxury kind of exclusive premium product. And so I see that as a risk really Nordstrom could be facing down the road. It may not be happening today, but it could be a threat to this business down the road. And that's one thing I'm concerned about is that it might follow the same path as Coach did um, with the outlet stores that they were doing and with the rack stores that uh, Nordstrom is doing. So that leads to question question eight, is the stock cheap? So as I said, the stock was trading in the high 40s. Um, the stock was kind of languishing in the 30s, and then the company decided that they were going to try and go private, and then the stock just popped and went up into the high 40s. Turned out it didn't work, and then the next thing you know, the stock went back all the way down to the 40s, and that was the $40 level, and that's where I caught my attention. Um, when I looked at some of the discounted cash flow analysis um, in terms of valuation, the valuation on the company comes in between $49 and $59, and so at the time when I was looking at the stock, it was about $40 a share. So I thought, you know what, if it's 49 to 50 to $60 valuation on it, there's at least 20, again, 20, 30, 40% value on the upside um, on the stock. So again, um, when I factor all these elements in, it's generating strong economic profit, it's in a high margin business, um, the risks of going down market with the rock are concerning, but I think those are more long-term, could, potent, could potentially be a long-term issue. Um, I think it could retail whether the, the Amazon threat. The other interesting thing about um, Nordstrom is it's generating, it's quite a player now in the online side of it. Their online component is, is generating a significant chunk of their overall revenue. So that's a good thing in terms of their ability to compete with, with an Amazon, if Amazon were to go hardcore into the luxury retail sector. Um, so, and at the end of the day, the family has said that they might take another shot at going private. So if they go try to go private again and they get a favorable financing deal, the stock could pop easily 10, 20% right off the bat. So to me, when I looked at it, I really wanted to have a position in a luxury kind of component in my portfolio. To me, this is kind of almost a best of breed, um, really strong, prudent management. Um, Again, one of the things I liked about Nordstrom too is the prudence of management. Like, uh, for example, um, in the last year or so, Nordstrom has now opened up stores here in Canada. And it's interesting that they took a much more, it took them about three years, two, three years before they opened their first store here because they didn't rush up here like Target did because they assumed the Canadian market is the same as the US market and just went in full of ego and eventually shut down. Nordstrom said, we're gonna take much more time in understanding how Canadian customers behave and try to tailor their product and their stores to suit their customers. So they took time to learn about their customers. And that's what I like about the management here is they have a really strong focus on service and they really have a strong, they've really demonstrated a willingness to wanna to learn and understand how their customers behave and really cater their products directly to them. And so those are good management competencies that I kind of look for in a, in a business. And so when I took that, that qualitative aspect with it and combined it with, uh, you know, the, the, the production, the, the operational performance, I thought, you know what, at $40 a share, I thought this may be a really good entry point into this side of it. So I decided to buy shares in it. And that's it, the end. So again, hopefully what I want you to see here is 
I didn't just wake up in the morning and say, hey, I'm gonna buy Nordstrom stock. I, I went through a process of trying to figure out, understand the business, understand what they do, what makes them unique, who they sell their products to, do they actually make money, is this a financially strong business, what are the risks associated with the business, and then ultimately is it from a value perspective, valuation perspective, is it a great time to buy the stock? Is there an opportunity here to make some money on the upside with it? And so once you're able to answer and frame your decision making around answering these questions, that's where you're gonna get, you should have a pretty pretty decent idea of whether you're gonna buy the stock or not. And so hopefully I've been able to share with you with these two examples that I've actually followed through on, um, how it's really important to have that framework in making your investment decisions. And this is what I teach in, in my everyday investing course. Um, this is what I teach people, this is what you can learn, is how to develop that framework for making investment decisions and try to improve the odds of, and the probabilities of you making successful investment decisions. So I hope you found that of value. I know the feedback I get from, I know uh, feedback I get from a lot of people who listen to the podcasts, especially these episodes that I do, they really like these episodes because it's not, we're not talking around investing. And that's what I love about these episodes is I'm not talking around investing and just giving you motherhood statements. We're getting rolling our sleeves, rolling up our sleeves and looking and digging down and try to figure out, you know what? I got to make some decisions. Let's figure out, make some decisions and let's make some money. And let's get on with it. So I hope you found that of value. If you have any questions about these episodes, about the episode, you can get a hold of me in a bunch of ways. You can find me on my Facebook page, Sage Investors. Leave a comment. I'll be more than happy to answer. Um, you can find me through my website. You can send me an email through my website, sageinvestors.ca. There's more information on my website about all the various courses that I offer um, and uh, in person and online. So I kind of, I can be virtual and I can be in your face. So hopefully uh, if you're interested in that, you can check out my website. And also I'm on Twitter all the time. My handle is at Sage Investors. Um, these type of investment decisions, as I make decisions personally, I actually tweet them in real time. I also share on my Twitter handle and all my other platforms um, stuff that I'm reading that's I'm actually reading and using to formula, help formulate my own investment decisions. And I share them with you so you can benefit from them. So you can follow me on Twitter, follow me on Facebook, uh, Facebook page, and, uh, and check me out on my website. So thank you very much. I think that's all I got for you today. A lot of stuff, a lot of investing. We're, just, oh, we're eating investing today. Um, thank you very much for listening. Um, my name is Amon Reina. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stock Talk. My name is Amon Reina of Sage Investors. And thank you again for listening. And we'll catch you again another time. Mm -hmm.